Professor McCrane, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Why don't we uh, start up with your background? We know where'd you start? Uh, where have you been so far? And what are you working on now? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a, I'm a UNC Chapel Hill graduate. And then after I finished college, I moved to uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, for a few years where I worked uh, as an intern on the Hill. And then I did um, some kind of uh, policy adjacent jobs, uh, working a lot on Capitol Hill uh, in kind of a nonprofit lobbying world and then in advocacy for nonprofit organizations. So I've been following uh, policymaking in DC for a long time. And then that sort of led me to going back to graduate school uh, to get a political science PhD. Uh, so I finished my PhD at Emory University in 2020. I was a postdoc at Michigan State last year. I'm now an assistant professor of political science at the University of Utah. And I study um, a bunch of topics in public policy, uh, most uh, uh, germane to today as I study a lot of uh, congressional capacity, uh, congressional staff and human capital. And then more broadly, uh, the, the sort of like labor markets within political institutions and the effects that has on the kind of policy output and behavior of the, the politicians and government officials. So for instance, the incentives of the revolving door and what those produce in the behavior of the people who work in government. So I'm kind of broadly interested in these kind of uh, uh, questions about public policy making and the, the, the effects that the capacity of the, the, the institution has on policy output in particular within the labor market. And so was that what motivated you originally to go into this area of work or was it something else? Yeah, so I mean, my, my background is sort of like understanding both the, the internal workings of congressional offices, having spent time in one, and then also uh, working a lot with the staff themselves, and then seeing the lobbying side of things, like seeing what the lobbying industry looks like, uh, the very straightforward transition from congressional uh, offices to the lobbying world, uh, really kind of piqued my curiosity once I started reading some of the academic literature on the revolving door. And so that kind of what is what led me to also studying more broadly congressional staff and now also um, these questions of like how professional legislatures are, especially within the states, is my is sort of my 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 view of the actual like day to day work of these institutions. Well, why don't we start then, in, you know, in terms of our discussion on the staffing side of things, since you have direct experience there and and moving from there to the lobbying side. So what is kind of your the, the big questions you're asking about this kind of staff question or, or resource or or uh, capacity and how do you approach that what questions are you asking what have you found. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I think the thing that that's always struck me as interesting is that congressional staff have a very straightforward set of incentives, none of them are particularly controversial right it's to you know it's a, it's a place where a lot of young people go. Uh, and are especially ambitious people, and they want to use it to kind of launch their careers in either something in politics, government, or something adjacent to that. And so this set of incentives uh, produces a, a kind of interesting labor market where uh, everybody is really underpaid, and they can kind of, they're willing to accept the fact that they're underpaid, because one, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of like public service motivation among these people, and to some degree, right, where they actually do want to do stuff that, that, that benefits society and, and work in government. But also like, and this always struck me is there was this like really, really straightforward idea among people working on the Hill as to like the direct value of their experience for either the next job they had in Capitol Hill or more specifically, 
what they were going to be doing off of the hill. And so that that like broad set of incentives, uh, I, I always found interesting and worth exploring, especially kind of vis-a-vis -vis the lobbying industry. And then that led me to sort of think more broadly about, okay, so if staff had these incentives, how do members of Congress uh, like construct an office and recruit and retain the kinds of people that are going to let them be effective and actually let them do the things that they're elected to do uh, if they can't like pay people enough to keep them around. And that's kind of like led to my broader research interest more generally on like the representational consequences of the, the, the sort of labor market incentives of the individuals that work uh, in Congress. So when you when you've done this work, are you looking at specific roles within Congress? You know, there's and they're the chiefs for for member offices anyway. They're they're the chiefs. They're the legislative directors. There's the communications directors that are typically thought of as kind of the senior team. And then there's the whole committee staff, which is a different beast. You know, how do you approach the different kinds of roles? And are they all all the incentives the same, or is it radically different from one group to another? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, so I've looked at pretty much everybody. So I think that most, to me, like the most interesting set of people are people who work in these, uh, in the actual member offices, especially on the House side. Uh, the House side in particular is interesting because members are all sort of given the same budget and they, they have to like, essentially they're just told to like figure out how to spend uh, a million and a half dollars every year on running an office. Like we are going to give you very, very basic guidelines on this. It's totally up to you. And so kind of dividing those those resources into, you know, these broad buckets of like policymaking versus, you know, constituency service or district tasks has always been like a really interesting challenge to me. Like, how do you like, how would you optimally do that if you knew what you wanted to get out of it? And so because of that, I, I, I kind of look at all sorts of the individuals in these offices, you know, and, and the different the, the set of incentives is obviously different for more senior staff than it would be for more junior staff because more senior staff actually do have a little bit more reason to stick around if they can they're paid a little bit more they have a lot of responsibility they're kind of like especially in the house they're like really powerful people like really young people can get into these really really powerful positions uh, because of how important individual staffers are and sort of underlining a lot of this my interest in this is the is the understanding that uh, members of congress rely really heavily on their staff you know, I'm sure you're aware of this talking to a lot of people who work in Congress, but it, it, it's always just struck me as astounding the degree to which they're just like, and they're always just like really forthcoming about this, right? It's, they're always super appreciative of their staff. They, they rely heavily on them. The academic literature supports this as well, that, 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 that basically all of the kind of day-to-day -day stuff that we attribute to members of Congress is at some, at some basis a function of their staff. So like, the, the, the individual importance of like one or two staffers, especially in like a house office where they have relatively small staff is huge. And that's why I think it's really interesting to understand what the incentives of those people are. But that led the, the power in terms of legislation typically is would be centered then around the chief and the legislative director typically is my understanding. I don't know if that comports with what you found in your research. Yeah, I mean, so that's generally the case, right, is in the House, especially like those are going to be your most uh, experienced legislative folks. But, you know, I, I would keep in mind, it's not just, you know, it's not just writing the bills that's an important feature of policymaking in the House. It's it's sort of it's it's what it's what's called in the literature. that's like legislative entrepreneurship, like seeking out opportunities to to kind of insert yourself in the policymaking process to find find ways to do things that your constituents want. 
they're going to benefit your constituents. So this is complicated. It's, it's hard to find the information you need to be an effective policymaker. It's hard to figure out how to vote on policy that's coming up, right? It's hard to figure out like what stakeholders are going to be affected by certain kinds of policy. And so that that's like a team effort. So there's a lot of people in offices that are kind of tasked with those sorts of ta uh, responsibilities. In the Senate, there's a lot of people who can do that within a given office. But in the House, you know, these individual staffers wear lots of different hats and have to like regularly take meetings and go to hearings and cover all sorts of things. They have to work with stakeholders to draft legislation. So it's not just like one or two people that have the most responsibility. It, it's usually spread out quite a bit. And you can have like, you know, a 26-year-old legislative assistant who's got, you know, five different policy areas that they're responsible for following. And, and that's a that's a lot of, of responsibility, in my opinion. So what about in terms of the committees? Did you find is I mean, it's typically thought that that's where really most of the expertise lies and yeah. uh, the specialization. Um, what's different about the committees than the member offices in terms of staff? Yeah, the committee offices are sort of, you know, and, and this is my understanding talking with people as well is like, that's the kind of definitely the specialized job. It's also like the kind of really prestigious job, right? If you're like a senior committee staffer, you have you, you, you're you a policy expert in that field. It's a really good job. Uh, the salaries are usually higher in committees. And, you know, also what's important to keep in mind, right, is that uh, staff in personal offices are always subject to uh, their member losing, they're not, they're not given any sort of civil service protection, so they can be fired at will. So, I mean, in general, even along those dimensions, working a committee is, is, is a better job for most people, uh, especially now that uh, staff uh, can get paid a little bit more, which we can talk about later. Um, and so like committee staff tend to be much more specialized experts. So they're faced with sort of different con career concerns uh, along those lines. And I've, I've done some work that shows that, you know, that if for those committee staff that do go into like the lobbying industry, they go into much more like specialized technical policy kinds of roles instead of these kind of broader, um, you know, contract lobbyists that are like your kind of your typical mental image of what a lobbyist looks like. So let's move on then to compensation. So and turnover. So I'm sure that, you know, we've done work, obviously, in this area, as we discussed, um, looking at turnover, looking at uh, you know, the, the tenure of your average staffer, um, you know, have you looked at these issues in compensation? Have you looked at these issues? What have you found so far? What do, what do people know and what do they think they know and what have you found? Yeah, this is, this is probably my favorite area to study in Congress because, and this is something that always struck me as pretty wild is that the data to actually study this is, is, is it's like a non-trivial task to, to wrap your hands around this data. It's massive, it's public but it's really messy. And so the Congressional Research Service, CRS, creates some reports on like this stuff, but they, they only use like small samples of the data because it is so hard to use. And I've found in my work that they Congress itself doesn't really have a good sense of these broad, like kind of macro labor market things that are just, you know, because it's just so hard to understand it in the data. So, for instance, I have, a, I have a bunch of research that looks at various features of this. So one of my favorite things, uh, for instance, is that uh, on average, uh, since the, the early 2000s, only 50% of staff have careers that last more than two years. And so for some a frame of reference, the Office of Personnel Management says that 
over 50% of federal bureaucrats have careers more than 13 years. So, I mean, this is a feature of Congress, right? Is, is there's so much churn, there's so much turnover. It's meant to be a place where people go for just a little bit and then leave. But that's like a really interesting problem because so one thing that we think from the academic literature on this is that the way you get people to invest in expert, expertise that's that's related to the thing that they do, like their job, their the place they work, in this case, like the congressional office or district in which they work, is you give them the ability to stay, right? If you give them the ability to stay, which includes, you know, career protections, adequate salaries, especially salaries that are at least somewhat competitive with what the outside option would be, then those people will invest in this, what we call like relationship specific expertise, the expertise is specific to the job they're doing. So I would suggest like, especially in personal offices in Congress, there's very little incentive for an individual to do that, uh, especially if they work in an office that is at risk of, of losing an election, right? Because then what your incentive is, is it's to position yourself to be well-placed to move to a different office or to move off the hill and really take advantage of the experience you had and make money doing it. And this is not, this is not to suggest that that's negative. That's just a straightforward uh, risk averse consideration, right? You want to make sure that if you're going to lose your job tomorrow, you're well positioned to find another one. And so I think that that is super interesting because, you know, that in the, and if you aggregate up all of these individual level preferences along that dimension, this idea that they, the people are really strategic about positioning themselves for the next job and not necessarily the current one, then what you find is that members who don't offer these like really enticing places to work based on, you know, either the fact that they're in competitive districts, you know, maybe they're junior members who can't do much like real policymaking work. Maybe there are offices that have to do a bunch of constituency service work because of the kinds of districts they represent. So if you take those things into account, what happens is those offices can't really offer lots of these really appealing jobs to staff who want to stay or to want to really invest and become really good at that job. And so what I find in my research is that those kinds of offices, those junior members, those members in like these really kind of poor districts that have to do a lot of constituency service work, they, they, they attract like less experienced staff, staff with fewer kinds of credentials that you would think would be good on Capitol Hill and they have higher turnover among those staff. So it's it's like those offices are sort of at a disadvantage because they cannot they cannot attract and retain the kinds of staff that will enable them to be really effective members of Congress. Right, if they don't see a career, uh, it's gonna be exactly. tough to attract people who want to I mean, and as somebody who's worked in the private sector, right, you, you would know that this is not a particularly unique uh, concept. It's like if 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 you want to attract the best people, you need to give them a reason to come there. And if it's not salary, right, which on the Hill, it's typically not. So I have research that shows the average salaries of most Hill jobs are uh, terribly low. So for instance, in the House uh, in, 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 in 2018, the average legislative assistant is making like $50,000 a year. And, you know, DC is an expensive place to live. And that is a very important job. Even if they're young people doing it, it's an important job. And so if you're not offering them salaries, right, what are you offering them? Well, you're offering them the credential of being on the Hill and doing really important policy things. But that's just to, to sort of substitute for salaries so that they can then make that salary up in the future when they leave. And so like, if you can't offer either salary or that opportunity, how are you going to attract the kinds of like really high quality types uh, that you need to be an effective member of Congress? 
unless there's an overwhelming supply of such people. Um, so I'm curious about the supply. Where does it come from? You know, this is a great question. It's something we actually don't know a ton about. So one thing that we do know is that uh, there obviously is a large supply of people. And so even these offices that don't, that don't offer these really good places to work on those dimensions I just talked about, they're still going to obviously be able to fill these roles. But again, there's no reason for those members, those staff to stay in those roles, right? So what I find is that staff like move offices all the time, and they're especially moving into better looking offices along those dimensions. So that's one thing that is sort of a feature of this market. But the other feature of this market where, you know, these, these especially entry level jobs are really low paid, is it produces a system where prominently uh, wealthy people from wealthy backgrounds are able to take advantage of those jobs, essentially, like people who don't have to worry too much about making $25,000 a year uh, for a couple of years can take those jobs. So what this does is it produces uh, kind of broader inequalities in the workforce in Congress. This is something that Congress has started paying attention to, to their credit. Um, but it's, 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 you know, we can talk about this later when we talk about reforms, but this is a hard thing to fix. So that's one issue. The other issue is that Congress has historically not offered great benefits to its staff. And partly this is because members are able to um, kind of structure their benefits however they want to a degree. It's, it's totally up to them how they run their office. So another reason, so another thing we've seen, and I have research on this, is we see these pretty substantial gender pay gaps in Congress because uh, of a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that women who want to have families and you know, and we know from the literature, right, that the, the the burden of childbearing is prominently on women. They can't stay in Congress because there's not there's not good benefits for childcare. There's not good benefits for leave. Uh, the working conditions are terrible. So what we see is at these top levels, especially in staff, we have these massive gender pay gaps because it's mostly that uh, uh, women tend to filter out in, uh, from these senior roles. So that's another sort of uh, kind of equilibrium outcome of the way the current structure works. And we can talk about like some alternatives that that might, that might kind, of, uh, kind of ameliorate those sorts of problems. So for the staff compensation uh, situation, is it, is it equal across all roles or some roles, you know, market and other roles are way below market or is it pretty much even across the board that everybody's taking a 50% pay cut of, off what they would get in the private sector? Yeah, you know, the, so this is again one of my favorite things to, to talk about because I, I I also get the strong sense that Congress does not have a good understanding of its own problem here. Uh, so I wrote this piece up for the the, the Washington Post Monkey Cage blog about uh, Nancy Pelosi's recent push to increase the top like the ceiling that staff can get paid, which is like it seems like oh yeah that makes a lot of sense we should make it such that really high quality staff have the ability to get paid more. And that's probably going to be, you know, a good thing for a very few number of staff, right? So the staff who are already making a lot of money will probably make more money. Uh, committee staff who are making a lot of money are going to make more money. Uh, you could still make an argument that it's not as competitive with outside wages still, and it's probably not, but it's not going to be like massive, right? They're still making enough money to comfortably live on in D.C., so that those are the kinds of people we're not super worried about, right? These like chiefs of staff or these really senior committee staff in the Senate, like there's a there's a decent number of people who actually do make good wages. But it's like this this bottom tier of staff who are these junior staff 
or especially these like constituency service staff, they're still going to get underpaid like crazy, right? I mean, and there's no there's no world where, especially the kinds of backgrounds these people have coming into the into the hill, like there's no world where they're going to make that little money, especially in DC. Um, and there's no reason to suspect that by raising the top amount that staff can make, that's going to have any impact at all on the lower rank staff. And again, like these people do a lot of the day-to-day -day work in Congress. They filter through what constituents want. They they parse information. They they work with stakeholders. I mean, it's not it's not a trivial job these people have, and 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 they are making you know. So for instance, a legislative correspondent, which is a pretty common entry level sort of like second step up from entry level in most Hill offices, uh, on your way towards like a legislative assistant job. I mean, they're making under forty thousand dollars a year. And these are people with like graduate degrees, uh, with very, very impressive resumes. And it's, you know, it's it's not clear like you would stay in that role if if you didn't have an exit strategy. Yeah, for for the staff, you know, when we're talking about these different roles, we're talking about the compensation, you know, I, I, I do recall Newt Gingrich, uh, at least my understanding is that at that point there was a backlash against too much staff because, you know they were getting too much power according to some reports or whatever and so they slashed the staff and tried to you know bring that power back to the to the members um so i mean it sounds like you're more on the you're more an advocate of stronger staff more capacity in the staff as compared with um you know uh, you know less staff or less expertise in congress so what would be kind of your what would be your recommendation and, and why would you take that position? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I don't know if I want to say necessarily I'm an advocate of a certain position. I would say that if our goal as a society is a certain thing, then there's a pretty straightforward, you know, policy direction to pursue it, right? So if Newt Gingrich's perspective is that Congress should be doing less on its own and relying more on either internal sources of expertise, such as like nonpartisan ones, such as the CBO or the Congressional Research Service, and we're also relying more on external sources of expertise, such as lobbyists, then definitely what you would wanna do is reduce the number of staff that members have access to. Like that would be the way you would do that. So on the other hand, if our goal is to make Congress uh, more self-reliant, right, to allow members to respond to the idiosyncrasies of their districts, what their constituents want, and to have to rely less on lobbyists to make complex policy, then yeah, we want them to have more expertise, right? We want them to have a better ability to do that stuff on their own. And there's other things you could think of pursuing in the, towards that end, which is increasing the amount of resources that these what they call internal service agencies have within Congress. These, 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 these places like CBO or CRS, there used to be others that, that have gone away. And if we made, if we gave them more money, then maybe you could imagine that members of Congress would go to them as like a nonpartisan source. But that also does not seem very, you know, popular. Uh, so I think that, you know, I think, I think the, the thing with having staff being too powerful is certainly something you could consider, but like, the alternative would be you don't have members who can really do anything on their own. And so my colleague, Jim Curry, who you've talked to, what he shows is that it's probably the case that 
congressional leadership would prefer that, that members aren't able to do much on their own. Because what that does is it makes them rely on leadership. It gives leadership a lot of power and control over their individual members. So you've got this sort of like tension between what is probably like net positive from a like normative society perspective, but, and what members might want, but you've also got this like trade-off with what congressional leadership probably wants, uh, which is not the same thing because they would like to have them, they would like to have all of the policy expertise and capacity within their own ranks and be able to sort of dole it out uh, to their members. So, you know, you mentioned the CRS and other kinds of third parties. I mean, one of the criticisms of increasing the, you know, the member budget is that they'll just spend it on constituent service and they'll be no smarter than they were before, but, but they'll be more likely to be reelected. Um, you know, and in, instead of, and they already have a budget of, as you said, one and a half million dollars or so, 16 people in the house and in the Senate, was it around 50 or 60, something like that. So, if those are the incentives a member has, then it would, you know, if you really want to build expertise, it sounds like you would put more money into the CRS and other kinds of dedicated research bodies. Um, is that kind of where you come down or do you think you should give more money to the discretion of the member? That's a, I mean, that's a fantastic question. And I think something Congress needs to think about more because I, I don't see a lot of discussion of this coming from the modernization committee. Uh, because the Modernization Committee thinks that members need more, more money and they need bigger budgets and that will fix the staffing salary problem and the revolving door problem. I disagree with all of that. I don't think that's going to fix anything because of exactly what you're talking about, right? Members are able to spend the money essentially how they want. And so one thing that I've found is that uh, previous increases to members' representational allowances, this bucket of money they're given to spend on their offices and stuff, has not produced any additional spending on staff salaries at all. So a lot of what they spend the money on is either uh, maybe hiring an additional staffer uh, or uh, like stuff like franked mail, which is partly constituency service or just other kind of constituency service related tasks. So yeah, I would agree that it's not obvious at all that higher MRAs are going to produce uh, kind of like net positive increases in terms of like policy making capacity. So yeah, so one approach that I do think that, you know, I think the modernization committee does know is probably necessary is, you know, better funded and, and more like opportunities to work with these internal sources of expertise. Another approach that I don't really see considered and partly because I think it's gonna be really unpopular among congressional leadership is something that's more like the, the federal civil service for staff, where they work for like the institution itself and not the members. And the, the salary scales are sort of set uh, to like a grade scale level. And they're through that, they're given sorts of career protections and really straightforward salary increases. I mean, that would be a huge reform, uh, but it seems to me like something like that is what's gonna be necessary to fix a lot of these underlying issues uh, that, that won't be addressed just by, by giving members more money to spend every year. Well, that would require centralization of HR, basically, um, which, you know, would, you know, and I don't know the history of it, uh, you know, back to the beginning, but it, it would stand to reason that you would have centralized HR, right? And just all the things that you mentioned, I mean, if anything else, it puts the loyalty of the, of the staff towards the institution rather than to the member. 
but I guess that's the crux of the problem, isn't it? Uh, where you have the, that's not what the member wants. Yeah. So this is uh this is the puzzle. Uh, is I mean, so one of the so one of the like classical stories for why the staffing structure looks this way is it's because members need the ability to flexibly respond to what their districts look like, what their constituents want, et cetera. And if you take away that control, then we've then maybe we've actually reduced the effectiveness of members of Congress, at least along one dimension. Uh, so it's a trade-off. I mean, it's a complicated thing to figure out is to how to make it such that we can get both of these things. I mean, I do think that there's a degree to which, you know, Congress could say, you know, these are like the minimum salaries for these job positions. And, you know, you have to pay people th these sorts of salaries. And also, you know, these are the benefits you get and you have to offer these kinds of benefits. So there might be something like a middle ground, but I, I don't see a universe where telling members of Congress how they have to spend their money is something that's going to pass. So what about in terms of these, um, you know, the CRS and other bodies, you know, how does it work there? Or have you looked at that question, you know, in terms of their compensation, their longevity and their positions and, and you know, the expertise, you know, that in theory is, is that, you know, accessible by members? You know, I actually don't know much about that. That would be a really interesting thing to study is like the human capital within these agencies. Uh, I have to imagine it's higher because, you know, it, it's, it is more of like a technocratic job. And I, you know, I know a lot of people in CRS, a lot of PhDs in political science in CRS, and they've been there for a long time. But yeah, that's a good question. I actually don't know much about that. So if we kind of take the middle ground, which is between, the, I guess there's CRS on the one side, and there's the member on the other side, and in between there's the committees where there's some expertise, right? Uh, and maybe more of a career path for some, for some types of staffers. Um, in the committees though, you have this issue of the, of partisan resources, right? And I know you've done some work on that. Can you talk about, you know, what happens when it comes to staff resourcing and party? Yeah, so, I mean, so it seems like, right, that committee resources might be something that are beneficial, generally speaking, to the members of the committee. And I don't, everything that I've found and I've talked to a bunch of people, uh, especially people from like leadership positions or people in, in the offices of, you know, committee chairs. And the, essentially the committee resources are only responsive to the chair or the ranking member. And so I've talked to people, for instance, you've told me that, you know, if somebody from the committee chair or from the committee comes and talks to them, who's in an office not uh, in the committee chair's office, they think that that, that person is purely just speaking on behalf of the committee and then through them, the, the committee chair or ranking member and not, you know, not necessarily saying something that is particular to that office uh, and to that office's sort of environment. So in other words, uh, the, the, these resources are really just owned by the committee chair and they get to use them how they want. And so they don't really benefit other people in the committee to any real degree uh and so it's a really that's why part of the reason it's really nice to become a committee chair and it's a really powerful job is you do have access to this really big pool of resources that are kind of fully under your control and it seems to, and everything i found is like both parties sort of benefit whenever they're in leadership it doesn't it's not like a big partisan difference here so it's uh it is sort of like a, a big reason why becoming a committee chair is a really nice gig so 
but I don't think all, all committees don't work exactly the same in this regard, right? There are some that have, you know, bipartisan staffs and they sort of all work together. And then there are others that are straight up split. You know, it's there's the Republican staff and then there's the Democratic staff and they don't they don't like or talk to each other unless they have to. You know, is, is that really what you found or and, and what's the resolution? That doesn't seem like an optimal way to to run the resources of a committee. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question. So I haven't done a ton of like empirical work on this, but I've talked to a number of people uh, about this specifically. And essentially my understanding is most committees are pretty split. Like you work for the majority or minority, but there is difference in committees to the degree to which the work is partisan. So a lot of so pretty much like a lot of committees will retain the same staff, regardless of who's in the majority or minority, uh, because they're more just like straight technocratic staff. It's a good question, though, as to which committees that is. And as far as I know, that's not something that we have an answer to and would probably be worth pursuing. And when you think about committees, what is the expertise that the staff really has? Is it is it you know, is it about the law that exists that that committee covers? Is it new problems or ideas that are on the table? Is it who to talk to to get something passed? You know, what really is the function that the staff is is uh, is performing? Yeah, I mean, so basically everything you said, right? So these are going to be people who are more like um, like uh, uh, federal bureaucrats in the sense of their backgrounds. They're going to be like really technocratic experts in a particular policy area. Uh, but they're also going to have a lot of um, like process knowledge and process expertise, like actually understand how things work on the Hill. Uh, you'll see a lot of people with a lot more kind of um, uh, professional or graduate degrees as well. So a lot of lawyers, uh, a lot more PhDs, that sort of thing, because they are doing like something that's very specialized. Um, and so, yeah, they're, they're, they're really processing a lot of information. Uh, they're working on very specific kind of like working with federal agencies, for instance, on on how it works, how the legislation works with regulatory policy. Um, uh, uh, they're, they're working with stakeholders who are relevant to to sort of, again, get a good sense of what the effects of legislation will have. Uh, so, yeah, much more technical and less uh, political, I would say. So but the one thing that surprises me about the committees because they're typically talked about as having all this expertise, but they can't possibly have the expertise really needed to draft legislation. I mean, you know, the, the executive branch has got all kinds of regulators that are there full time and know it, you know, and even they don't have the expertise of the private sector in any particular place where they're regulating. So it would seem that although the, the committees are typically referred to as bastions of expertise, my impression is that it would be difficult for them to really have enough expertise to do legislation. So it, is their function really to kind of like gather other expertise together and like, you know, get the right witnesses to bring more value or are they themselves providing the expertise function rather than some kind of, you know, the, some kind of coordination function to get other expertise? That's a good question. I, I think it's a, a bit of both, right? I think it's a degree of, you know, they sort of know the questions to ask, right? And the people that they, they need to bring into the process. Um, you know, so committees, like like you said, they do work a lot with uh, agencies uh, because so much of legislative policy has to do with how it's going to be implemented within the agencies. Um, I, you know, I think committees still work pretty actively with stakeholders. I mean, I've met with committee staff when I was a lobbyist. 
Um, and mostly that's like an informational thing, right? Like, cause I mean, lobbyists, like they know the environment, right? They know the policy environment. Like they know, especially about like specific issues. Uh, and so they might have a particular view on it, but they also know exactly who's going to be affected and, and, and like the really deep, the detailed stuff about, you know, like telecommunications policy, which is really complicated. So I think it's part of that. I think it's like a combination of, of, of like sort of a coordination thing where you can coordinate the stakeholders and the, and the, the federal agency folks, as well as, uh, you know, um, sort of the, the, the working directly for the committee leadership as well. So I think it's a really complicated task and, you know, I'm not clear. It's not clear to me, like exactly, like if we, like for instance, if committees had like a ton more resources, if it would work much different because there's still a degree to which it's idiosyncratic to a particular policy issue. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I know there's a lot of work recently on um, kind of committee capacity. I'm working on some stuff as well, but it's hard to tie exactly into because uh, so much of this is not really public we don't really see the degree to which they work with stakeholders and so that's it's hard to understand exactly the role that outside sources have within the committee process itself yeah I, I mean i wonder whether you know if you had a committee whether you'd rather invest resources in hiring more experts giving the existing experts more money or providing them some kind of apparatus to collect expertise from third parties in a more efficient manner right i mean i would think that um you know, with the technology, you'd be able to connect to more experts outside of Congress, and they would serve more of a coordination function that would have the highest kind of return on investment if you're looking at how to bolster committee capacity. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, I think that's a, yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think congressional committees are definitely an area where you want to give the people who want to stay the ability to stay, right? So like that, and from that angle, like offering more money is probably good, right? We don't want to be, you know, committees don't want to be losing people to the, the private sector to work in the same policy areas. So that, that's probably one dimension. But you, yeah, I think, you know, another way to frame, I think what you're asking is like, what's the diminishing marginal return of giving them more money? And that's a great question. Because I think, again, to a certain degree, they're always going to be stakeholders that have to be worked with and often are writing the legislation initially in the first place. So it's unclear that that would actually change. Right. One other question I have related to this, um, this resources, and I know you've, you've looked at congressional resource usage, et cetera, in the member level, but then there's also the committee level where there's a lopsided uh, resource for the majority party. Um, you know, have you looked at that and what that means? You know, does it mean that the minority actually has even less power in the house then would be implied by its numerical uh you know within the ratio between the parties what does it mean in the senate you know in terms of like if i'm an average republican or democrat i'm in the minority or majority does it impact my power does it impact the what happens on the in, in congress you know i don't think that there's much party difference here i mean the only thing that i would say that's a big party difference is what you find is that Republican members of Congress spend less of their, their budgets that they're allocated every year. Um, and, you know, part of that is because, you know, there's like a principled position that they take on sending some of it back to the treasury. 
but you know that's a choice that's being made so you know i i haven't found like hardly any difference systematically in uh you know by party in terms of how that this this sort of like human capital resource use thing works besides besides that which is primarily driven by a handful of members who just don't spend all of their money but other than that you they're kind of all faced with the same constraints and what about in committees is it the same situation in my experience yeah I, I think it's basically the same deal um you know there's there's this cadre of professional committee staff who stick around and work for minority or my majority some of them are partisan some of them are not and i i don't think that there's really any partisan advantage here got it well let's move on to unless you have another topic on the uh, on staff or congressional capacity you'd like to discuss we can move on to the your, your other big topic which is news yeah, that sounds great. Uh, so I know you've done some work, you know, as it relates at least to local news um, and how that impacts the incentives that lawmakers have, right, on a state level. I don't know if you've done that for Congress. Can you talk through what what, what your research is in this area, what questions are you asking, and what have you found? Yeah, so one of the, so what, so there's a couple, like one piece of background information, right, is we know that the news environment uh, in particular, like the coverage of politicians affects the accountability of those politicians, right? So if, if voters know more about the behavior of politicians, then they're more likely to, to, to kind of hold them accountable and reelect the good ones and, um, and, uh, and elect somebody else if it's a bad one. So that's kind of the general principle behind uh, the kind of a, a research on, on media effects and politics. So I have research that shows that the local media environment is changing quite a bit. This is something a lot of other people have talked about. And in particular, I show that uh, with Greg Martin, that there's this, this media ownership group called Sinclair, which is this like, like very partisan, um, uh, massive media conglomerate that's buying up all of these local news stations. And what they do when they buy up a station, and what we find is that these stations are spending uh, less of their time on local politics and more time on national politics. And the, the political coverage they, they, they have is more slanted to the right relative to other stations in the same media market. So this is brought up part of this broader trend uh, in, in, in the kind of political media where uh, consumers of media want more national political coverage and less local political coverage. Uh, and it's this trend of like this nationalization of media more broadly, where it's like these this handful of, of, of media owners own like the vast majority of media outlets in the country, especially in newspapers. And so what that means is there's this incentive for these national conglomerate media producers to centralize the production of content and then push it out to their local affiliates because it costs less for them to do that than it costs them to hire a bunch of local reporters. So the effects this would have on members of Congress is a couple. One is that it makes just in general the news environment more nationalized. So it's no longer members of Congress are responding as much to local issues. It's more like congressional races are becoming more nationalized. They're running on things that the president, the presidential campaigns are running on, right? These big national issues because voters just know less about uh, the local political landscape. So that would be a big effect, right? And, and so some people have tied this sort of idea to increasing like polarization in the electorate where the, the sort of dividing lines are now like in, in pretty much all races 
are on these big national issues instead of more kind of idiosyncratic local things. Uh, so that's definitely a big thing. You know, one thing that, that Greg Martin and I are looking at too is sort of the effects of these changing media environments on like the re-election rates of, 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 of politicians. The idea being like, if you know less about the local political landscape, you're more just likely to elect the incumbent because incumbents have an advantage for a number of reasons. So that's another thing that we're finding is that there is like this increased incumbency advantage given the decrease in local media coverage. For the you mentioned earlier that there's less demand for local news coverage. Is that is that really the case, or is it just there's less ability to make money doing so? It's a good question. Um, it's a very good question. So the general kind of conventional wisdom is there's less demand for local news. It's extremely hard to tie that with the fact that, or to like sort of separate that from the fact that the 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 economy for news is changing right so i think the consensus is that the the sort of demand for more national news is happening first and that's producing less local news and that sort of creates this feedback loop right i mean but there is a feature of this too where the, the economics for media have changed a ton right like so newspapers can no longer really, a lot of local newspapers can no longer sustain themselves because advertising revenue uh, has dropped substantially and subscription revenue is not enough to make up the difference. So that's definitely a feature of the media environment. Another feature of the media environment is the conglomerate ownership of local media sources where like a, a few major ownership groups are buying up all of the local news sources. And that produces these like economies of scale. And that's another feature so I think I think kind of more simply then there's like you've got this like sort of vicious feedback loop that's producing both of those things. Yeah, I mean, I wonder it's just the cost of acquiring a local news outlet has dropped so low that anyone with a political position can buy one and use it as their mouthpiece, right? Whereas in the past, it would have been too expensive to execute that strategy because those were operating businesses with profits uh and uh, would have been hard to control them at least that's one theory yeah i mean so that's actually what's kind of interesting about this is like the local media landscape in like the 19th century was an extremely partisan thing like it was just like there were straight party newspapers and that was the local media in a lot of places and then we went away from that to more like traditional like journalistic outlets with lots of resources uh especially in newspapers which were almost always propped up entirely by advertising money uh, and then the advertising money went away and now we're getting back to this world of like it's affordable to buy these outlets so some very politically motivated groups are buying these outlets for that purpose uh and that is 100 percent the case what it seems to be the sinclair's business model uh is that's what they're doing it's less clear if that's happening at the newspaper level but i haven't really seen any research on that either um but yeah so i think that you know we're moving back to this sort of like somewhat like 19th century era uh, uh, local media. The problem being, though, is that now there are a lot of areas that just don't have any local news at all. So what does it do for the, the legislators, right? I mean, do they actually read the news that's local or do they not care? Are they, are they responding? Are they just, you know, how does it actually impact them? Do they ever care about what happens in that news outlet? Are they only looking at social media at this point? You know, what, what, what's really going on? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, so I think the consensus is this has changed a lot, especially over like the last decade. So like what we knew from research that was conducted on like the 1990s to 2000s is that the kind of media environments, like for instance, there's a really awesome paper by some economists against Calvin Shapiro that shows that the number of media outlets that overlapped a congressional district. So for instance, you have like congressional districts and cities uh, that have lots of media outlets. So basically the more coverage of a member of Congress because they had more media outlets covering them, it makes the member of Congress more accountable to the voters, right? Because voters know more about them. Uh, members of Congress think their actions are more likely to be covered by the media outlets. So there's this idea then that they are really responsive to this because they're worried about you know, upsetting their constituencies, especially their like what we would call their electoral constituencies, the people that elect them specifically. I don't really know what that would produce today, right? Like if that's the case, given both the media environment we just talked about and also that social media sort of facilitates reaching directly those like most, uh, you know, the strongest supporters like directly. So I'm not really sure like if, members of Congress, especially like relatively new ones, have the same kind of mental uh, picture of what the media environment does to their re-elections. And I haven't really seen too much research on that. It'd be really interesting to study. Yeah, and it would also be interesting to understand the, the nature of the coverage has changed. Like, you know, my understanding is that in the, in the old days, you know, the local news might be more positive on the, on what the member was doing. You know, it's, kissing babies, you know, the working hard in Congress to- or it's like easy to district. get good news coverage. Yeah. Right, whereas now they don't have that. Uh, maybe the typically, if they see them in the news, it's gonna be in a negative light, I would guess. That's a great question. <laughs> uh, I would love to know. I mean, so we could definitely study this within local TV news for sure, is to see the degree to which, uh, like the, the coverage of actual like members of Congress is, of a certain kind of valence is like positive or negative. Uh, that would be really interesting to know. Um, all right, well, good. Well, how about we move on to uh, our common questions we ask all our guests, uh, sure. see if we can someday compare the answers, um, if you're ready for that phase. Sure. Uh, so the first question I have here is, uh, you know, um, what do you think congressional representation should mean? Um, I mean, I, I you know, I guess my brief answer to that would be the ability of members of Congress to actually represent their, their constituents' beliefs or to actually produce policy that their constituents want. So what we know from research is that uh, politicians, especially members of Congress, have pretty wrong views about their constituents' opinion about a lot of important policy issues. and from you know, kind of work like mine, we know that it's hard for members of Congress to produce policy. So like some combination of both of those things, increasing like better knowledge of their constituents and more expertise to do the things that their constituents want is like a, is, is sort of like what I think of as congressional representation. Okay, so that's interesting. So you've combined the concept of expertise and of beliefs, which usually are opposed uh, in models of representation. So. I guess maybe we ask this way. Do you think a member represents the whole district or just a, like the, the primary or the voters or, or, or where do you come down on that first question? <laughs> I mean, there have been so many books written about this. Um, 
I mean, you know. And this is a should question. So this is your personal opinion, not yeah, necessarily yeah. what they actually I mean, do. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think members should obviously represent their whole districts, but I, you know, I, I don't know the degree to which that's a reality, I mean, or even practical. I mean, I think that members of Congress should have the ability to represent whoever they think they need to be representing. Like, I think there's like a sort of even more base level of should here, which is like, have the ability to represent whoever they view as their their kind of electoral or broader constituency. And when they do that representation, do you see them as, it sounds like on the one side, you think they should reflect their beliefs versus that trustee model where they make judgments <laughs> on their behalf? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that it's important to have like an informed view of what their constituents want. Like if their constituents want like, uh, like, so for instance, if their constituents want gun control legislation and they just believe that they don't, like that's something that needs to, that that's a fundamental flaw that needs to be fixed. Got it. So you're heavier on the side of beliefs. Yeah, I think beliefs and the ability to act on them. Great. Um, all right. Well, so the next question is, uh, how would your ideal Congress allocate its time? Well, I mean, I think the ideal breakdown is not too far off of like the actual calendar right now. But the problem is so much of their time is spent fundraising that the, the calendar breakdown does not really represent reality. So, I mean, the ideal way would be they just have to spend less time fundraising, but that is an extremely complicated problem to solve. So you think uh, reduce the fundraising and the current calendar, which is, is it two weeks on, one week's off, one week off concept, or where is it now? Uh, yeah, I don't know off the top of my head exactly what it is, but yeah, I mean, I think it's important that members I, I've always thought that it's important members spend a lot of time in districts, right? And and this idea that members of Congress aren't working, but you know, X number of weeks a year because that's when they're in DC is not to me that's not true. Like they're they're working in their districts. Got it. And do you have an opinion on the legislation versus oversight concept uh, in terms of how they should allocate their time? Um. You know, I don't think the allocation is necessarily off. I think it's again comes to this question of can they do both effectively? And I would suggest that definitely oversight is extremely hard to do and not being done effectively, largely because of capacity issues. And by that, you mean the staffing expertise? And yeah, more broadly, just like expertise available to members of Congress to understand what they're overseeing. Got it. All right. Well, the next question is. Um, you know, how should debate, deliberation, or dialogue occur or be structured in Congress? You know, should it be in committees? Should it be on the floor? Should it be in back rooms? Should it be out in public? You know, you know, should it be at retreats? What's your thought on how this, how these different forms of communication should happen? I don't have a lot of priors on this. This isn't really my area of expertise. I would say the only thing that I do think probably needs more of is more actual backroom negotiation because it does give members the ability to make deals to get things done. I mean, I think that in general, I think as voters, we want Congress to be doing a little bit more than they are. And I think that's one of those things that would actually facilitate that. So you, you're in favor of a little bit more backroom dealing? Yeah, I mean, like in a non sort of, you know, nefarious way, like, like, you know, this for the same reason that like earmarks are probably good is because it allows just more kind of compromise. Got it. Um, 
Next question is what fundamental institutional improvement should Congress make within 50 years? Hmm. Um, that's a great question. Um, I would say something like really institutionalizing its internal expertise. I mean, again, this is, you know, what I think about the most. And, you know, as we've talked about, that's a complicated reality to think through. But I mean, the, the, the basic principles of this, which are making this a job that people can do and not have to live in poverty or have to purely audition for, uh, you know, post Congress jobs to do, like anything along those dimensions will be a massive improvement. So there's models that exist in other countries where you have that like vast resources available for internal nonpartisan expertise. Uh, that would be definitely one improvement that could be made is like really, really increasing those sorts of resources and incentivizing members to use them. So maybe I can ask a little follow-up question to that that relates to our earlier discussion, which is this notion of expertise. It sounds like to you, expertise means human beings that are employees basically of the legislative branch. Now there's alternatives which are like, you know, we have a big database and uh, you know, there's no, there's no, there's, there's no staff, there's just members and this database, right? And the database just continues to be filled with stuff and the members can access it, right? They're super Google. Uh, so when you talk about expertise, are you talking about the concept of expertise? Are you talking about a concept of the staff that have expertise? Can you just elaborate a little bit more yeah. in defining this concept of expertise, just so I have a better handle on that? Yeah, no, I mean, that's a great question, right? So, I mean, there's 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 one part of this where, you know, we can't make members use the resources they have, right? Like, if members of Congress like Madison Gawthorne want to just completely ignore the, the ability they have to to use policymaking expertise, then they will continue to be able to do so. You know, and there's not much, we can't do anything about that. That's up to voters, right? But I think that we can, we can, we can create, I think Congress can create, and we as voters should support the ability to access adequate resources to, to understand things either in, in, in voting, in, in reading legislation and producing legislation, right? I mean, like so many members of Congress right now rely on lobbyists to write bills for very straightforward reasons, which is it's complicated and time consuming and lobbyists have the ability and resources to do it. And like, that's something that we can fix, I think, for the members who want to fix it, right? And that's sort of like all we can offer is like, so in, in that sense, an expertise is like, it's like this, this just pool of resources that's available and 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 members are incentivized to use it okay but typically you see it as embodied in human beings and and the best way to keep that knowledge there is to give them a path for a career and and uh and yeah i mean additional expertise yeah and and maybe it's not personal office staff that's going to fix this right because like again that's going to be complicated but i think you know like a good first step is is producing like a strong you know, in like really like lots of different resources in the institution itself that are that are paid by the institution that members believe are trustworthy sources of information like that. And that's going to obviously come through human capital. But, you know, we can structure the institution such that 
the human capital is like aggregating up to this nice thing. Got it. So your view is a pretty broad one of expertise in Congress. And you think the, the, if we think about fundamental improvements in Congress to build that expertise up, the shortest, the path of least resistance is to pay staff more and give them a career. Yeah, I mean, to some, to some, some version of that, right? I mean, it's not, yeah, it's not obvious like how to how to structure that in a good way. But you know, again, like I mean, the reason that it doesn't bind in an electoral setting that some members, lots of members, introduce bills written by lobbyists because everybody does it. And so, like, if it becomes less of a, an accepted thing, then maybe we can start to change that. And and then also, members can actually write their own bills if they have people they can rely on to do it, like and who actually have expertise in doing it. Right. Great. Well, the next question is, what book or article most shaped your thinking with respect to congressional reform? Um, <laughs> uh, Jim Curry's book, Legislating in the Dark, honestly. Uh, and I'm going to sit in this interview, but uh, that that's what really shaped my perspective on this, this idea that there's just this massive asymmetry in sort of like policy capacity. And it's kind of by design. Excellent. Uh, well, the last question is really uh, about yourself. You know, what are your plans for your research in the, in the long run? Is it is it still the capacity issue? Do you have other kinds of ideas uh, on the back burner that you wanna explore at some point? Yeah, absolutely. So I have a couple of papers I'm trying to get published on kind of these, these big topics we talked about today, like the labor market, within Congress and sort of what that means for members, right? Both looking at the individual staffer labor market and then like how that aggregates up to the office level. Uh, and then I have papers on the, the, the way that um, members use their resources and how that looks systematically different based on the kind of district they represent. With the idea there being that potentially, you know, we observe all these inequalities in policymaking, especially like poor people we think are underrepresented. So what I argue is at least part of the reason that's true is because uh, members of Congress who represent poor districts are losing in the state and the staff labor market are not able to hire the kinds of people who help them make policy even if they wanted to so that's kind of like on my kind of congress capacity side but i have a lot of work in progress both survey experiments and observational stuff on um uh, uh legislative professionalism within states so this is where you really see massive diversity in how much resources members have like so in utah they have like no staff it's a it's a part time legislature. They're not paid much versus like California, which is much more of a congressional model. And that's really important. Right. And that really produces uh, differences in how voters are represented, because, I mean, if you have no staff and no background in a policy area, how are you supposed to do anything? You either don't or you rely exclusively on outside interests. And so that to me, that's a really important question. So, yeah, that's my broad interest in sort of like legislative capacity and professionalism. I have work in uh, policing um, policy on like the human capital and policing that I'm working on now. I have work on the federal bureaucracy on the kind of human capital and the federal bureaucracy, the revolving door in the federal bureaucracy. So I'm really interested in these like kind of labor market considerations more broadly in politics and policy. Excellent. Well, Professor McCrane, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's been a pleasure and best of luck with future work. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. You have some excellent questions. Thank you. And you had some excellent answers. Much appreciated.